This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This is CNN Breaking News. Hello, everyone. I'm Frederica Whitfield. Thank you so much for joining us. New today, Iraq is now summoning a top U.S. diplomatic official in protest of a barrage of punishing U.S. airstrikes in the Middle East. The U.S. says those strikes hit 85 targets linked to Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps Quds Force and affiliated militia groups in Iraq and Syria. The strikes, a response to a drone attack in Jordan which killed three American soldiers on Sunday. Iraq is claiming the explosions that just happened involving the U.S., killing 16 people, including civilians. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin says these strikes are just the beginning of the U.S. response. Iran says the U.S. has made a strategic mistake, while Iraq and Syria say the U.S. actions could inflame more conflict in the region. CNN has teams around the globe covering all of these developments. Let's go first to CNN's Ben Wiedemann in Jordan. Uh, ben, uh, these strikes were sudden, devastating. How uh, are officials on the ground? How are those in Iraq reacting? Well, I'll start with Syria, where, of course, they've said the Syrian officials have said that there have been civilian as well as military casualties in what's described as significant devastation in this several spots in the eastern part of the country, where it's known that Iranian advisors as well as Iranian-backed militias have been uh, operating. Now, as far as Iraq is concerned, let's keep in mind that there are about 2,500 U.S. troops in Iraq at the moment. Now, the Iraqis have come out and condemned the U.S. strikes, uh, saying that they're unacceptable, they're a violation of... Uh, national sovereignty and we've heard the same thing from the Iranian government as well now the uh, the Iraqi foreign ministry has summoned the U.S. charge d'affaires in Baghdad. There is no ambassador at the moment uh, to file an official protest. Uh, but beyond those countries that are aligned or close to Iran, uh, the, the reaction across the Arab world has been fairly muted to these strikes. Frederica? Uh, okay, Ben, uh, let's go to Ken Liptak now, who's traveling with President Biden in uh, Wilmington. So, uh, Kevin, the U.S. says, you know, this is just part of its military response. The president said he had made a decision not long ago, and we also understand it would be in phases. What more are you hearing from the White House? Yeah, really, all American officials from the president on down saying this was just the first salvo in their response. Even before these attacks began, we had heard from officials that this would be a multi-phase process lasting weeks, perhaps even months. And in his statement last night, President Biden saying that this was not the end of the American reprisal, saying our response began today. It will continue at times and places of our choosing. And I think it's notable there. He said times and places, plural. 
The president goes on to say the United States does not seek conflict in the Middle East or anywhere else in the world, but let all those who might seek to do us harm know this. If you harm an American, we will respond. Now, the next phase of this isn't exactly clear. American officials are understandably reticent about describing in great detail what might happen next, and certainly they will be looking at how these strikes proceeded, the assessment on the ground, as they calibrate their response going forward. There are another, a number of other factors that would contribute to the timing, including the weather. And it was interesting listening to American officials last night describe the central role that the weather played in the timing of this response, because there had been this gap of several days between when the president said he had decided on a response and when we saw it begin. Officials said they were looking for a clear day so they were able to better see the targets and avoid any unintended casualties. But this really does move into a new phase. Biden and his administration's response to this growing conflict in the region. He is trying to strike a balance here, trying to deter these groups, trying to degrade their capabilities, while also preventing a wider war from breaking out in the region. And remember, Frederica, he is also trying to secure this major breakthrough agreement that would secure the release of hostages in Gaza in exchange for a prolonged pause in the fighting. None of these things is happening in a vacuum. And certainly President Biden watching this very closely going forward. All right. Thank you, Kevin. Back to you, Ben. Um, we're also getting details about several new U.S. strikes in Yemen. Uh, U.S. CENTCOM says it targeted multiple Houthi drones preparing to attack ships in the Red Sea and Gulf of Aden on Friday. Uh, what is the latest on that? Yeah, these were really targets of opportunity of drones being uh, launched at shipping in the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden. They're not uh, sort of along the same lines uh, as the kind of strikes we saw overnight in Syria and Iraq. Uh, there's a U.S. carrier group operating in the area. They used F-18s to shoot some of those uh, drones down, fired by the Houthis, according uh, to the Pentagon. And this is really what has been going on. On, uh, almost on a daily basis now uh, for many, many weeks. And of course, uh, the Houthis, their rationale for these, uh, for targeting navigation in the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden is that they believe they are helping the people of Hamas by preventing ships from reaching Israel as Israel pursues its war in Gaza. Frederica? All right, we'll leave it there for now, gentlemen. I'm Ben Wiedemann, Kevin Liptak, thanks to both of you. We'll see you again next hour. All right, let's get more analysis now on all of this. Joining me right now is CNN military analyst and retired Air Force Colonel Cedric Layton. Uh, good to see you, Colonel. So what do you believe the message is that the U.S. is sending with these strikes? Well, Frederica, I think the message has several components to it, but one of them is that we are telling the Iranians that their proxies are entities that they are actually responsible for. Uh, so we're sending a message saying that these proxies uh, have behaved badly uh, and uh, that their conduct was unacceptable when they killed those three American soldiers. And as a result, uh, we're going after not only the proxies, but also, as far as we can tell, uh, elements of Iranian intelligence and the Iranian Revolutionary Guard as it's deployed into Syria and Iraq. So. 
uh, it'll be interesting to see what the uh, battle damage assessment actually is, uh, you know, how successful these attacks actually were. Uh, but uh, the message to Iran is one uh, where we're, what we're trying to send is uh, we can use weapons that uh, at the moment have only been used outside of Iran, uh, but uh, those weapons are also capable of going into Iran should we feel the need to do so. So many analysts such as yourself prior to these strikes had said uh, after those three U.S. soldiers killed that the U.S. has to go at it very hard uh, to respond to what happened. So how at this juncture does the U.S. retaliate without engaging in an all-out war in that region? Yeah, it really has to be a calibrated series of responses, Frederica. And uh, what you're seeing right now is, in essence, the beginning phase of that uh, of that response. Uh, it was a very hard-hitting uh, attack. Uh, it uh, you know might be the beginning of what I would call a mini air campaign, uh, where you go in and you have a, a set of targets. So you basically have a target list that you go after, and it's uh, done by importance. So the kinds of things that uh, you think are part of their uh, command structure, their logistical structure. And if you note uh, that when you look at where these strikes actually occurred, they're basically along the Euphrates River Valley, both in Syria and in Iraq. And that is uh, where there is a high concentration of these militias and, of course, uh, the advisors from Iran that are helping those militias. So that's the first phase. And as things move forward, sometimes these targets are going to be restruck, but they're going to be done in a way that's methodical, that's systematic, uh, with the idea of uh, keeping these people in check. Mm -hmm. uh, we're, we're also learning that Jordan is participating uh, in this U.S. operation on Iran-backed targets. Um, what does that tell you about Jordan's, you know, reported involvement? And might there be other, you know, neighbors who would also be assisting? Yes, that's going to be a, a questionable thing, uh, whether or not other neighbors will assist uh, Jordan and uh, the U.S. in this. But uh, the attack on Tower 22 occurred in on Jordanian territory in, in Jordan itself. And as a result of that, uh, the Kingdom of Jordan feels it's important to protect their sovereignty and to make that happen. And so that's the basic idea here. The other nations, I don't think, are going to do that. Hmm. All right, Colonel Cedric Layton, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. And of course, we'll have more on this breaking news at the top of the hour. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm Frederica Whitfield. Amanpour is next. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 
Welcome to the program, everyone. I'm Christiane Amanpour in London. There are ghastly wars raging here in Europe and in the Middle East, but we begin today by focusing on the greatest existential threat to humanity and the extraordinary people doing something about it. Climate change is going to be top of the ballot for nearly half the world's population heading into elections this year. The leaders they choose will collectively decide the path we take, embracing meaningful action or subverting it. In the United States, voters look set to face two radically different views. President Biden's, who signed the country's most sweeping climate legislation, and former President Trump, who openly rejects climate change. A recent CNN poll found that there is bipartisan support for environmental action, with 73% of adults saying the federal government should design climate policies to cut greenhouse emissions in half by the end of this decade. So here are the facts. Last year was the hottest year on record. NASA has warned this year could be even hotter. And the UN says governments are not doing enough to cut pollution and avoid catastrophic levels of global warming. So the stakes couldn't be higher. In a moment, I'll talk to someone who's been sounding the climate alarm for decades, former Vice President Al Gore. But first, some good news. There are plenty of people right now trying to save our planet, and they are making a difference. Here's CNN's chief climate correspondent, Bill Weir. These days, it can feel as if some part of the planet is always burning or flooding, or both in succession. But less obvious is the clean industrial revolution cranking up around the world, driven as much by profits as politics. Oh my goodness. Wind and sun energy is now so cheap, the deep red state of Texas creates more renewable energy than California. And with hundreds of billions of investment dollars pouring into clean tech, startups like Antora, hope revolutionary thermal batteries like this will power entire factories and move entire industries to the sun and wind belts. 1,600 degrees Celsius. So this is hotter than the melting point of steel, and it's just a couple feet inside that shell. I had a hard time explaining to my kids what nuclear fusion is, but this is just a hot rock in a box. Exactly. In speed and scale, China is leading the transition at a staggering pace, spending almost as much in clean energy last year as the entire world invested in fossil fuels. But science says it's not enough just to add clean energy. It must replace the dirty old kind. And since methane has over 80 times the planet cooking power of carbon dioxide in the near term, President Joe Biden halted the expansion of massive liquefied natural gas terminals in Louisiana until the climate costs can be better understood, setting up a stark re-election rematch with the man one expert calls a climate arsonist. Their windmills are causing whales to die in numbers never seen before. Nobody does anything about that. But the laws of physics do not pause for elections. And the state of Maine is among those places already reeling with the changes. So this is, is all, was what that was yeah, there? Yeah, the whole building. No way. This is, that's what's yeah. left of it. Just generations and generations of stuff. And, yeah. you know, there's, there's a lot of memory down there. Two freakish January storms devastated the iconic lobster and fishing communities already suffering effects of warmer seas. But Maine is also leaning into adaptation and mitigation with gusto. According to the nonprofit Rewiring America, Mainers are replacing old furnaces with more efficient heat pumps 
at a rate three times faster than the U.S. average. Their climate action plan is among the most robust in the nation. So we're keeping eyes on places like this to see how people are adjusting to this new abnormal. Now, Al Gore's documentary, An Inconvenient Truth, won two Oscars back in 2007, and he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for raising awareness about climate change. Former Vice President Al Gore, welcome back to the program. Um, can I start by asking you what you made of our correspondent, Bill Weir, and how you assess, you know, some of the hopeful solutions and what grassroots people and organizations are doing? Well, first of all, thank you, Christiane, for devoting the time and attention you are to this uh, crucial issue. I remember when you were covering uh, the Earth Summit uh, mm -hmm. back in 1992. Uh, and I think Bill Weir uh, is, is doing an outstanding job, and I think he's got it about right. Uh, it's tricky to balance the dire warnings that the scientists have been trying to get us to listen to for a long time. And of course, you know, the scientists turned out to be spot on uh, correct in what they warned about years ago. And so we should pay more attention to the warnings they're issuing now. If we do not sharply reduce the burning of fossil fuel, the, the climate crisis is really a fossil fuel crisis, so that's 80% of it. Uh, and we have this mandate now to transition away from fossil fuels. If we do not do that quickly, what the scientists are telling us is that uh, things are going to get a lot worse and cause great havoc. But there's great hope. Uh, and you have to balance the warnings with the fact that mm -hmm. there is really good news. Uh, as Bill says, people are working on it. But here is some good news from the scientists as well. Once we reach true net zero and stop adding to the overburden of this heat trapping pollution that we're spewing into the sky every day, uh, then the temperatures will stop going up almost immediately with a lag of as little as three to five years. And if we stay at true net zero, then half of all the human-caused greenhouse gas pollution will come out of the atmosphere in as little as 25 to 30 years. And the long, slow healing process can begin. Uh, the challenge, of course, is to stop using fossil fuels as quickly as possible. But there again, there's really good news with the solar and wind and batteries and electric vehicles and green hydrogen is coming on now uh, online and uh, regenerative agriculture, which is one of the real keys and uh, sustainable forestry and circular manufacturing. The list is a long one, but investors and business leaders, uh, particularly in the consumer facing companies where their customers are demanding it. And by the way, the employees in these companies and the families of the executives and some of the executives themselves are saying, look, we got to be a part of the solution instead of making the problem continually worse. And you're also a politician. Do you agree that uh, this will be top of mind for voters, certainly young voters in the United States and uh, around the rest of the world? Well, I think there is a big generation gap on it and young voters, and by the way, in the US, young voters in both political parties and large majorities are demanding action on this. But as you know, Christiane, the, the politics of climate have for decades been very challenging because it is by nature a global uh, a challenge and we're not always used to dealing with that kind of uh, crisis. Uh, it plays out over time periods that are a little bit longer than election cycles and the next polling uh, results. Uh, and as a, as a result, it has been a challenge for both political parties. The Republican Party used to be part of the group uh, searching for solutions, but 
that is a po- we've now got a polarized situation in the U.S., which is tragic and unnecessary. But I'm hoping that the young people you referred to, particularly the young Republicans, are beginning to to heal that uh, polarizing divide. So I just want to ask you, you know, James Hansen, the, the NASA expert who was one of the, the first on climate warnings, has warned that, you know, unless there's some massively radical thing to, to happen very soon, the magic 1.5 degrees number will, you know, will be surpassed. And there seems to be a struggle over the experts over that. Where do you come down on that? Well, I have the deepest respect for Jim Hansen uh, and also for his colleagues who have a slightly different view, but they agree on most things. You know, half of the calendar days in 2023 were actually above 1.5. And in November, there were two days above uh, a a two degree margin above the pre-industrial temperature. So, uh, yes, we're running out of time to, to solve this in time. But, and we're running some unacceptably high risks with large global uh, systems that uh, are important for the flourishing of humanity that are now being destabilized. Mm-hmm. So the sooner the better. Uh, the issue you're referring to uh, is over how sensitive the climate is to more and more greenhouse gas pollution. And uh, ultimately, uh, they agree on far more than they disagree. They're all saying the same thing. We got to switch away from fossil fuels as quickly as possible and stop using the sky as an open sewer. That's the basic problem. We're putting 162 million tons up there every day. uh, And the accumulated amount, it stays on average each molecule for about 100 years. And the accumulated amount today, Christiane, is trapping as much extra heat as would be released by 750,000 Hiroshima-class, Oppenheimer-era atomic bombs exploding on the Earth every single day. Uh, That's insane for us to allow that to continue, particularly when we have the alternatives available now that are cheaper, cleaner, create three times as many jobs per dollar invested. All we have to do really is to overcome the political power and influence of the fossil fuel companies, which have you, you know, been trying to persuade people that this, this is not such a big deal and they're, they're trying to extend their business plan and the petro states put up a lot of resistance in the international negotiations. We are getting there uh, and we will solve this. People should be of good, good hope on this. But the question is, will we solve it in time? We have to speed up this process. Okay, so stand by, Mr. Vice President, because there's also the political problem, not just in corporations, but actually in politics, particularly in the United States. We're going to discuss politics and the election year ahead. Also ahead on the program, can Congress really protect people from AI porn after deep fake images of Taylor Swift flood social media? From executive producers Park Chan-wook and Robert Downey Jr., The Sympathizer is the new HBO original limited series based on the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel of the same name. Join me, Philip Nguyen, a scholar of Vietnamese-American culture, and the cast and crew as we discuss the making of this historic series. Subscribe now to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and stream HBO's The Sympathizer starting April 14th exclusively on Max. Thank you. 
Welcome back to the program and our continuing conversation with Vice President Al Gore. Um, Mr. Gore, we've talked a lot about climate and how it matters. Leadership matters. Truth and lies matter. This year is a year of elections all over the world. The most people, you know, in recorded history will be going to elections, including in your country. Can I ask you then, because, you know, there's a lot of narrative in the air about, you know, about, about, about Biden and a lot of sort of almost premature fatalism about a Trump victory. What should they be saying to counter, really, Trump, which is, who is a bigger master of the public information space and the information wars? Well, Trump's mastery uh, has been uh, in doubt in uh, the last couple of weeks with uh, confusing uh, 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 Nancy Pelosi with Nikki Haley and con confusing other things. And I, I think, you know... Uh, I don't want to get into talking about him. I respect his supporters, and I think it's really important in this campaign season for people to maintain respect for his supporters. Many of them are using Trump as a vehicle to express their anger at how they don't think things have been going in the right direction. But to answer your question, Christiane, I think that more and more people are just now beginning to wake up to the fact that things are beginning to go in the right direction. Inflation has come down dramatically. Uh, now, the political influence is still there. But uh, 10 months from now, if the trend continues, inflation may not be an issue. Uh, employment is at all-time record high levels. The unemployment has been at record lows. Inequality is being reduced uh, and the wages are going up faster in the lowest income brackets. That's something many of us have wanted and worked for for a long time. The presidency is a team sport, uh, Christiane, and this team that President Biden uh, has recruited uh, is one of the best, if not the best, I think we have ever seen in the United States. And the president personally is the leader of that team. And I, I really believe that for those who have been feeling uh, despair about his prospects, uh, uh, be of good cheer. Uh, in my uh, time in politics, I ran for president tw twice, ran for vice president twice. One of the things that I've learned is that 10 months uh, is a long time. <laughs> and it's a mistake to look at polls uh, almost a year before the election. And, and by the way, even the polls are beginning to change. Uh, uh, in Biden's favor. So uh, now the the, the uh, cure for election despair uh, is activism. Uh, and the cure for climate despair is climate activism. And by the way, you can do both of those things. Uh, in the middle of April, April 12, 13, 14, the Climate Reality Project is having a training in the Javits Center in New York City for 5,000 people, anyone who wants to learn more about the causes and the solutions for the climate crisis and ways to communicate better in case they want to get involved in uh, the election season, whether they're Democrats or Republicans or independents, uh, go to climatereality.org and sign up. We'll be glad. I'll be there spending three days with you and uh, we'll have great people telling you about how you can become more knowledgeable and more skillful. And finally, you're a former senator as well as all the other roles you've held. There is a group of, um, you know, old-style Republicans, I guess I should put it, people like Adam Kinzinger, Lynn Cheney, and others, who are quite, 
you know, anti-MAGA, anti what they call, you know, politics of performance. Kinzinger told me the whole party, the Republican Party, has become a joke. It pretends to be a party of policy. Linking the issue of Ukraine and the border is very bad and very wrong. I just want to know from you what you think for the United States and for the defense of democracy it means to hold up aid to Ukraine as Putin is literally just sitting there salivating, waiting for that to dry up. Oh, it's incredible. Uh, you know, Winston Churchill and Franklin Roosevelt, Arthur Vandenberg, the great Republican senator who had the bipartisan uh, uh, support for our foreign policy in World War II and the Marshall Plan, they would be aghast at what's going on. And I have the deepest respect for the Republicans that you mentioned, but let me also say I have respect for some of the very ultra-conservative Republican senators today who have been negotiating a package to solve the border crisis and unlock the funding both for Ukraine and for uh, Israel. Uh, and they've done what our Congress is supposed to do under the Constitution, regardless of political and partisan differences. Put the people's interests first. Put the interests of the United States of America first. And they've done that. Mm -hmm. And now Donald Trump says, oh, uh, uh, no, no, don't do that, uh, because the worse things are, the better my chances in the election. So don't solve this crisis. Uh, keep, keep it going make it even worse at one point he said he hopes there's a depression uh, in the united states before the election uh, really i mean uh, again i have the i have respect for his supporters but but i have to say uh, in in all sincerity i hope that they will take a a hard look at what's going on here and listen to some of the ultra conservative republicans in the how in the senate particularly in the house who are saying wait a minute uh, if you balance the interests of the United States of America against this petty political desire to have a, a disaster to enhance uh, the, the election results, that's a pretty easy choice to make, isn't it? Really interesting. Vice President Al Gore, thank you so much indeed for joining us. And up next, AI pioneer Mustafa Suleiman's warning about disinformation as Congress wrestles with how to stamp out deep fake lies. Welcome back to the program. It's one of the few things Congress can actually agree on these days, criminalizing AI deepfake porn, which bipartisan senators are now working on after explicit images of Taylor Swift flooded the Internet. But we've been here before as regulators struggle to keep pace with new technology. AI disinformation, like the fake Biden robocall telling Democrats not to vote last month, is making it impossible to know what's real anymore. But it also means we're starting to question what is true. Joining me in the studio is Mustafa Suleiman. He is the co-founder of the AI lab DeepMind, which Google reportedly paid hundreds of millions of dollars for in 2014. He was in the room alongside other major tech players when President Biden announced new AI safeguards at the White House last year. And his book, The Coming Wave, envisions an era of both great prosperity and great uncertainty. Mustafa Suleiman, welcome to the program. 2023, let's say, has been the year of AI. Everybody was focused on it. And by and large, it was the catastrophizing of AI. People are worried about the elections, first and foremost. People are worried about knowing what truth is. What should we know right now after this year? 
Look, I think naturally, whenever we encounter a new technology, we initially feel anxious and we're sort of afraid. Like, what are the benefits? How is this going to affect society? What does it mean for jobs and privacy and trust? And they're all good questions to ask, but I think in the panic and the hype, perhaps, we're sort of losing sight of the very practical, real challenges we have in just getting this to work, getting it to be useful, getting it widely available, making it cheap so that anybody can play with it and experiment. And I think that that demonstrates that we can actually control these AI systems. They, we aren't at the mercy of them. This is not some technology that is taking place beyond us or outside of us. This isn't you know, an emergent effect of life. This is a tool. This is something that we make. These are real products that we have control. And that is precisely what people are worried about, that we actually eventually will not have control. You have no worries about that right now, even for the, let's say, let's just say the American election. We've already seen a fake robocall using a Biden voice, which wasn't his. That's scary stuff. Nobody's controlling that. Of course. Right. New technologies bring new threats. There's no question about it. And this is a new threat that we all have to grapple with. What does it mean for an AI to participate in the electoral process? I mean, we clearly should not have that. For all the weaknesses of the democratic process, democracy is for humans. You know, chatbots, AI-generated tools, these should not be allowed to participate in the elections. And the good news is that we actually have many, many choke points around which we can focus these kinds of policies. All of the big tech companies provide access to these services, right? And I think it should be an obligation on them. Another thing that people, people are worried about, unions are worried about, is the loss of jobs to AI. The IMF fund says the AI is set to affect nearly 40% of all jobs. Where does that leave people? I think more than two-thirds of CEOs interviewed at Davos just a few weeks ago came to the same conclusion, that this is fundamentally a labour-replacing technology in the long term. Yeah. In the medium term, over the next decade, it's going to be labour-augmenting. It will make people smarter, okay. more productive, more efficient with their time, more accurate with their engagements in working in an everyday office or organisation. But in the very long term, that same AI is going to learn to do those tasks more effectively than a regular human. And that, on its face, mm -hmm. should drive an enormous amount of value. That is good for everybody. We are going to see the most productive decade in the history of our species. We're able to do much, much more with less. The question is, how does that value get redistributed? It looks like President Putin, he fully understands what's at stake. In his end-of-year presser, he demonstrated the dangers and he had a sort of doppelganger AI version of himself. I don't know whether you saw this. I saw okay, that, okay. Yeah. He's saying, don't even think about imitating me, folks. I mean, how does that sit with you? Well, unfortunately for him, he's uh, got no chance because these technologies, by default, proliferate. They spread far and wide because they're useful and everybody demands them. And so people reproduce them in open source models, mm -hmm. software and code that can be reproduced for free, copied and made widely available on the internet, right? And so unchecked, that is the default trajectory of this technology. And I don't think that we're in that moment right now, but I can certainly imagine a time in five years or 10 years where these tools are just so, so powerful that left unchecked, they could cause enormous instability. And finally, I just want to ask, I don't know what you think, but all the uh, headlines about Elon Musk and his brain chip uh, that was just implanted. Is that just a vanity project or do you see that as useful? 
I think it's a pretty crazy project. I think it's, uh, you know, pretty far out and I don't expect to see any, you know, operational devices in the next 10 years, but it's hard to say, you know, over 20 or 30 years, it seems quite possible. I mean, we have tools around us all the time. We have hearing aids, we have glasses, you know, we wear, you know, continuous glucose monitors. We augment our body all the time, not to mention with drugs and so on. And so you can imagine this, you know, happening in the long term. Would you get your brain chip? Not yet. <laughs> I don't know. Probably not, probably not for many, many decades. Mustafa Suleiman, thank you so much indeed for joining us. Thanks so much. Great to see you. And when we come back from my archive with military aid for Ukraine in limbo, we rewind to the supply struggles faced by the American soldiers I met in the first Gulf War. No parts, no role. Welcome back. Now, we all recall America and its allies vowing to stand by Ukraine for as long as it took when Russia launched its full-scale invasion. But nearly two years into the war, the situation is bleak. Now, Vladimir Putin is pressing the advantage by ramping up attacks all along the front line, with Congress in a political deadlock on military funding. Time and ammunition are running out fast. So let's rewind to 1990. In response to Saddam Hussein's illegal invasion of Kuwait, the United States and its allies amassed the largest land, air and naval force seen since World War II. That was to repel him. But despite the immense military might, there were still frustrating supply issues for American soldiers I met before the war actually began. One, two, three. By the time the sun's up, the men of Bravo Company are performing their early morning routine, the start of another day that'll be full of ups and downs. Problems begin showing up at the morning meeting. These platoon leaders have just ended a night of security and reconnaissance training. They tell their commanding officer they're running out of basics, such as batteries, to power their night vision equipment. You can look at my night vision devices and see my Duracells my wife sent. Oh, yeah, we, we, we pointed that out to them, too. Lieutenant Bill Owen complains that military supplies and spare parts are not getting to the forward units fast enough. And we've ordered it and requested it and everything else. And what they do? They just say, yeah, yeah, drive on. Lieutenant Robert Forte says it's plaguing every level of training here, right down to individual weapons maintenance. Soldiers see the sand wearing out the rifles, but their spare parts haven't arrived yet. As a result, uh, we go out there and they'll try and use that weapon. It's not going to work. It'll work for a few minutes, then it'll stop. It's not, it's, it's not something that really makes us feel like we're combat ready. If there is combat, these ground forces will take the fire on the front lines. They haven't even begun full training with their armored vehicles. More than a month after being deployed, they have yet to train with live fire. And they are still another month away from conducting combat maneuvers with their Bradley fighting vehicles and M1 tanks. Maneuver training non-existent, that's your point, right? Yeah, big time. It's important that we get our tracks out there and we're rolling, we're training. I need to have a feel for that, and that only happens over time and experience. Correct. I don't have that now. The mighty M1s are supposed to be Iraq's worst nightmare. They've never been battle-tested, and so far their desert training consists mainly of checking their hydraulics and their sights. They don't move much because commanders won't risk having parts break down before they get the spares. It's the same story with the Bradleys. No parts, no roll is, is the bottom line. And um, with, our, with our maintenance problems being so bad, that affects our training. 
Four of this company's 14 Bradleys are down, so the soldiers wave happily when the first supply truck they've seen in weeks rolls in. But for the mechanics working into the night, the bad news is the new parts aren't always good. It's got broken wires in the wiring harness. While some soldiers anxiously watch and wait, others smile, knowing they needed more than just a day in the sun. U.S. deliveries sharply amped up as the threat of Saddam Hussein became ever clearer for the whole region. And President George H.W. Bush back then, like President Biden today, said the illegal invasion of a sovereign state would not stand. There is no justification whatsoever for this outrageous and brutal act of aggression. A puppet regime imposed from the outside is unacceptable. The acquisition of territory by force is unacceptable. No one, friend or foe, should doubt our desire for peace, and no one should underestimate our determination to confront aggression. Of course, those words echo now down the decades, and perhaps recalcitrant Republicans in Congress would do well to remember these cautionary words when it comes to stopping Putin in Ukraine. Don't forget, you can find all our shows online as podcasts at cnn.com slash podcast and on all other major platforms. I'm Christiana Manpour in London. Thank you for watching, and I will see you again next week. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.